Well, stress, right? Stress, we all feel it, don't we? In, in varying ways and varying times, right? Stress, when it comes when you have thoughts like, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, I gotta do more. Or maybe it's, I need, to, I need to keep up. I need to keep up on social media in terms of, I need to know what people are doing. I need to share what I'm doing. I need to comment. I need to post. I need to follow. Or maybe it's keeping up with demands. All the different demands of our life. To keeping up with the demands at home. Demands at work or school. Right? Demands in terms of friends or family. Demands when you look at others and you start comparing yourself to others, seeing what they're doing, what they have, how happy they look on social media or other types of updates. Right, there's all kinds of pressures we can feel when we seek to keep up with all the demands in our lives. And with that, we can feel like we are on 24-7. We can feel like we're on all the time. Isn't that true? Right, and technology is supposed to make it better, right? Technology, the promise of technology is to make everything easier everywhere. But is that true? Actually, the more I look at technology, the more I realize it simply magnifies and accelerates what already exists. And if we're stressed, full of stress, a technology can just make it more stressful. And so as we think about this, we think about all this stress talk, think about your life. I know for me, this is a challenge for me. I feel that pressure. I feel that pressure that I have to do this or do that or do more. I feel that pressure at times to, to keep up with the demands. No doubt at work, no doubt at home, no doubt in terms of friends and family. Or as I find myself comparing myself to other people, what they're doing, what they have, I can feel the pressure of wanting to keep up. Do you feel that pressure? My guess is you feel it in some way, perhaps maybe not the exact same way I feel it, but in your own way and what you're facing in your life and life story, you're facing it. And so in the middle of all of this stress talk, sorry for stressing you out this morning. You came to church maybe not to be stressed. God provides good news. Right? He doesn't leave us without instruction or help. He doesn't leave us on our own. And today we're going to look at a people who lived a pretty stress-filled life. Right? They were on all the time. They had to work every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And these people were God's people who were trapped in Egypt, enslaved by Pharaoh, working seven days a week, 365 days a year, with no weekends. Think about the word weekend. Weekend literally means, right, the end of the week. There was no end of the week for them. They were trapped in slavery. So I'm going to read an account from the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And I'm going to invite you, like I've done in previous weeks, to close your eyes. Don't fall asleep. Um, close your eyes and take in this account. Listen and put yourself in the place of the Israelites as they're in Egypt, trapped in slavery. Starting in verse 11 in Exodus chapter 1, we read this. So they, the Egyptians put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all of their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And why don't you open up your eyes? Right here we have snapshots of a people who were enslaved, who were oppressed, 
who didn't have any breaks, who were basically reduced to being doing machines, right, producing for the king, the evil king, Pharaoh. Right, as we look at these verses, we see that as slave masters were put over them, the description is that they were oppressed with forced labor. Right, this was no joke. And it's something that if you've grown up in the church or been a part of the church and maybe reflected on the fact that God's people were enslaved and trapped in Egypt, I know for me I can lose track with just how brutal this was, how despairing this was, how scary this must have been for them as they were under forced labor. And the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly, ruthlessly, to the point that the description here in verse 14 is that they made their lives bitter. They lived bitter lives. Right, God's people were enslaved, right, again, seven days a week, no breaks, no weekends. And we read later in Exodus chapter 12 that they were there enslaved for 430 years. 430 years trapped in Egypt. Think about this. Generation after generation, God's people going through this, being reduced to being doing machines, just producing for Pharaoh. Right. Neuroscientists have done studies in recent years about how the impacts of trauma are passed from one generation to the next. And so what would have been experienced in the first generation in Egypt, right? these Israelites who were enslaved, who, were, who their lives were made bitter, that would have been passed on to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation to the point that God's people would have been formed in this culture of doing as machines, not even treated as human beings, but simply as human doers at the expense of an evil king, Pharaoh, who just wanted his kingdom to be expanded. This would have, been, this would have become a way of life, a way of being. They knew nothing else. But did God leave them there? No. Right, those two great words that we see at different parts in the Bible, but God, say those with me, but God. Say it loud, but God, right? God interrupts our life stories with his grace. We see it throughout scripture, especially when God's people called out to them, called out to God, called out in their pain and their suffering. God heard their cries. God heard the cries of his people. And he sent Moses, right, to rescue them. And they were broken out of Egypt and they were, they were moved out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they needed to learn a new way of life after 430 years of being enslaved. Even their physical bodies, their, their mental, their brains were conditioned to just being human doing machines, not human beings. They needed to be retrained. They needed to be reformed. They needed to be restored. And in this, we see that as God brought them out of Egypt and gave them the law right at Mount Sinai. Right, we see in Exodus chapter 20, what's beginning with the Ten Commandments and then the law. This wasn't the way to earn favor with God. This was in the context of a covenant, a loving, binding relationship. Right? A biblical covenant is one where God initiates that relationship. He says, you are my people. You're mine. And then the people respond by following and trusting God. Here, God gives these laws, this new way of life, in essence, to retrain his dear people who had been enslaved for 430 years. And so we see that in Exodus 20. We see it recapped in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Right, Deuteronomy, if you haven't read that book of the Bible or haven't read it in a while, I invite you to go back to it. It's Moses' final words before he passes away and before God's people move into the promised land. And it's a passionate sermon from Moses saying, this is, for, do not forget the Lord your God. Remember him. And at the beginning of what Moses, this recap to God's people, he also begins 
with the Ten Commandments. I want to be a look at that, uh, one of the commandments today, but starting with the first verses, he sets it up, what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6, we read this. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So let's camp out in this verse for a moment. What do we learn here? We learn three things. First, we see here, first and foremost, that God's identity. He says, I am the Lord, right? I am the Lord. When you see the Lord in all capitals in the Old Testament, it refers to God's personal name, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. God revealed his personal name to Moses. But traditional Jewish reading would not allow for God's name to be said, so they replaced it with the word Lord. And so when you see I am the Lord, this is a personal description. I know for years when I read the Bible, it would be like, the Lord this, the Lord that, the Lord over there, the Lord over here. And it's just kind of this distant Lord, the Lord who's out there. But don't lose track. When you read your Old Testament and you see all capital L-O-R-D, it's personal. It's his name. It's like saying, I am the Lord. I am, it's a personal name. It's not someone who's distant. So we see his identity. We also see the personal relationship. He says, I am the Lord, your God. He doesn't say, I am the Lord, the God. He says, I am the Lord, your God. He's reminding God's people, I am your God. Here's my personal name. This is a personal relationship. You are my people. I love you. You're cherished. And then we also, the third thing we learn from this verse is God's action. Here's a reminder from Moses to God's people before they go into the promised land. He said, God said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So here's reminding him, reminding God's people that God's saying, I broke you out of Egypt. I, I took you out of there when you were enslaved. And then he proceeds to give the Ten Commandments and then the rest of the law, which is to retrain God's people. They needed it. They had lived, they didn't have to really think. They'd just wake up and work and work all day and work into the evening and just go to sleep and wake up and do it again for 430 years. So as we look at the Old Testament laws, I know for me for years I thought, is this the way to earn God's favor? Is this the way to earn your way to heaven? Is laws at its root, the beginning, the law was given as a gift to God's people, not for them to earn God's favor, but because they had his favor. And it was a way to retrain them after they came out of Egypt. So moving to the fourth commandment, going down to verse 12, we're going to look at verses 12, uh, 12 through 15. We read this. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox or donkey or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember, a big word in Deuteronomy, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So let's look at this passage verse by verse. Hey, verse 12, right here, God, in light of first saying, I'm the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt. He says, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. 
It says to observe it, like to remember it, to acknowledge it, to not forget it. He's like, observe it, keep it, do it. And he says by keeping it, meaning don't let it slip away. It's in this image for me when he says keep the Sabbath day, it's, it's like hold it because it's easily going to slip out of your grasp if you don't intentionally hold it or keep it. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it, he says, holy. Right? Holy means intentionally set aside for God's purposes. So, he's, so here in this command that God gives to his people, retraining them, coming out of Egypt, how to live in a different way, he says, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And he reminds them, it's because the Lord your God has commanded you. That's a strong language, right? Commanded. It's because he knew, God knew, that unless he was showed them it was serious business, that they needed to do this, that this was a command, that they would le- easily let it slip away. Because over 430 years of them living a certain way, working all the time, seven days a week, 365 days a year, it was ingrained in their very being, in their brains, in their bodies. He commanded them to observe a Sabbath day's rest. He said six days in verse 13, six days you shall labor and do all your work. In essence, God's saying, you have six days to work, right? Six out of seven, 85.7% of your week, go ahead and work. Get all of your work done in those six days. Verse 14 says, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, meaning the seventh day is a different day. And he says, on it you shall not do any work. Right, Sabbath which comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to cease or to stop. Here, in their, in their ears, it would have said, this is a time for us to stop, to cease acting and doing what we're normally used to doing. So the Sabbath day, he says, practice the Sabbath. And notice how it's a Sabbath to the Lord. It's not just a Sabbath in general. This is personal again. God's saying, dedicate this to me in our relationship, in how we are together. Dedicate this to me. And going down to verse 15, that's when he says again, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there. Those three words just jump off the page to me. Out of there. It's like, I brought you out of there. Remember what that was like? For them, they would remember the smells and the pain and the hurt and the shame and all that came from those slave masters. Right? This wasn't a little cute Bible story in Sunday school. This is 430 years of being trapped and oppressed in slavery where their lives were made bitter. God's reminding them, I brought you out of there, out of that horrible situation. Now, listen to what I have to say. He says, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Do you know that God still offers us this gift today? This gift is available to us today. Now, there's been lots of debate. Does the Sabbath apply to the New Testament times and beyond? We don't have time to go into all the details, but I can share this, that Jesus, right, said that, that the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath, meaning it's a gift for us. We're not to be controlled by it, but it's a gift. We see in the New Testament that both Jesus and the Apostle Paul critique the perversion of the Sabbath, not the practice of it meaning that it, they, they critique how, especially the religious leaders, right? In a book by David Henderson called Tranquility, he details, it's a great book about how to slow down in our crazy world, this book, Tranquility. He talks about how the Pharisees, the religious leaders at that time, like to try to follow the rules correctly. They would take a command of God and it would create a hedge around it, right? And so they would then say, okay, here's the one command, but we're gonna set up a ton of rules around it. 
And so if we follow those rules, we'll make sure that we'll follow this command. They wanted to, yes, obey God well, but boy, they took perfectionism to a whole nother level because they came up with 1,500 rules in 39 categories to make sure that people observed the Sabbath. And that legalism choked out people. In fact, it put them under a different kind of slavery. And Jesus critiqued that, especially when people were hurting. The Apostle Paul critiqued the perversion of the Sabbath, but they didn't critique the practice of it, meaning that it was a, it was a gift initially given by God to his people not, to not only find rest, but to refocus on God in the midst of crazy lives and schedules. And so what does this mean for us today as we think about this? Could there be anything seemingly more impractical for us? I thought it was crazy in Virginia. It's a lot crazier up here, right? More impractical to take a 24-hour period to practice Sabbath. Could there be anything more impractical? Well, my uh, invitation to you is to consider all the things of faith that we see in the Bible. Things that don't seem to make sense, but that God says when you step into it, something wonderful happens. There's a secret gift or grace in it. For instance, when Jesus commands us and teaches us, pray for your, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That makes no sense, right? Shouldn't we pray against our enemies, not pray for our enemies? Why would we pray for enemies? But anyone who's stepped into that practice and whoever is an enemy or feels like an enemy and you pray for them or someone who persecutes you and you pray for them, you experience a different kind of grace in that. Something happens that doesn't make sense unless you step into it and do it. Right? The same thing applies to financial giving and the notion of a tithe, right? The idea of giving away 10% of our income to God's purposes in the world, specifically through the local church. That seems crazy. Give away 10% you know, of your financial, financial giving, financial resources, like to God's purposes in the world and the church. But every person who's stepped up and done that, some who've gone all in, whether one step or moved towards it, they'll share over and over and over the amazing experience of how God then provides for them and backfills that giving or how they've been able to bless other people or how they've become a more generous and grace-filled person in the process. But they had to step out in faith and do it. The same thing applies to the Sabbath, I believe. It seems crazy. The idea of stopping and ceasing for a period of time, right? To be able to stop and to rest and to delight in God's gifts and to worship him in the course of a week. Um, as you think about this idea of Shabbat or Sabbath or to stop or cease, for me it's like an image of a, of a, of a rest in musical notation. As you're, if you're those who read music and you come to a rest and you just stop playing the music until the music says to do it or the conductor gives you the cue and then you move forward again. It's a time to stop. And in some ways, I guess you could say stop the hot air coming out. No, but stop in terms of musical playing at that time. But it's, um, it's hard. And it's particularly hard in our culture today because this isn't true like where I began, right? There's a lot of stress. Do this, do that, do more. And technology doesn't make it better. In fact, we have these little things that are supposed to make life better, right? And what these little things, these devices do is, at its worst, keep us not only connected, but keep us connected to all the demands that want us to keep up, not only with our home, our work, or school, or others. It goes on and on. And it can keep us connected seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Does that sound familiar? That's why I like to call this my little pharaoh. 
Right? Some of you saw the video. I could have come out in the costume. I didn't do it. I know I disappointed some of you who didn't, I didn't come in a costume today. But from a couple of years ago, I started calling this my little Pharaoh. Because if I don't watch it, I could become a tool of little Pharaoh versus little Pharaoh being a tool for me. And if we don't watch it, right, this is little Pharaoh. It even comes with hieroglyphics, emojis, right? It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It's amazing. But if we don't take time and take intentional steps to follow what God's given to us and to observe the Sabbath, not only little Pharaoh, but our schedules will control us. Those demands to keep up will control us as opposed to us allowing God to show us what's best and what to do. So how do we push against this? This is why I believe God, right, way back then, after 430 years of being in slavery, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, sounds familiar for today, right? That he said, practice and observe the Sabbath as a way to resist being human doing machines versus human beings. Right, so what does this look like, right? Sabbath, there's a, a couple descriptions of Sabbath. Uh, one, which has been helpful to me, it's based on a lot of church history from the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality uh, book by Pete Scazzaro. He gives four steps or four aspects of it. One is to, first and foremost, is to stop. Right? It comes from the word Shabbat, right? It meant to cease or to stop. And to intentionally stop, you know, at some point during the week and mark that time as a time to stop. In many ways, to seek to stop the madness, but to stop. And then once you stop, to look to rest. Rest meaning to identify the things in your life where you feel like you have to keep up to the demands, the demands of others, the demands of all the different aspects of your life, and to rest and to identify those things. For me, I have to identify what kicks up my adrenaline and where I start to feel that stress and say, God, I'm going to take a rest from that for a period of time. So you stop, and then you rest. The third part is to delight. And this is what's different than what the Pharisees were doing thousands of years ago. And typically, for those who are hardcore legalistic about the, the Sabbath, it's not just about removing work or removing activity. It's also about creating space to delight in the gifts that God has given to you. And so as you stop it for a period of time, and you stop being a human doing machine, and you get back to being a human being who relates to others, you can enjoy the gifts that God's given to you. Family his creation, good food, um, music maybe that you don't listen to, whatever it is for you, the things that, the gifts of God that are good, that you can find a time to delight in them because you have space to do it. Um, I think about what author uh, Marvin Darvis said. She said, activity that is enjoyable and freeing, Marvin Don that is, and not undertaken for the purpose of accomplishment qualifies as acceptable for Sabbath time. I love this description. It's something that you can delight in during that time. Um, if you think about if you're a parent or a grandparent and you give a gift to a child, there's something that's wonderful when the child receives that gift with joy and, and, and uses that gift or enjoys that gift. I believe this is a gift that God wants to give to us. And so with that gift, the fourth step of, in terms of Sabbath is worship. Worship, right? Taking a moment to praise God for who he is, thank him for what he's done, Remember that he's God and that we're not. And to, and to worship him, whether it's through reading scripture, through praying, it's a time to say, in the madness of life, from moving one day to the next, one week to the next, one month to the next, one quarter to the next, one year to the next, does that stress you out? To move through all of that to say, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna rest, delight, and worship.
And what are the outcomes? I believe if we make this step in some capacity, we receive rest and renewal. Not only do we do that, but we demonstrate God's claim on our life that he's God and we're not. And lastly, we're reminded that we are children of God. And as again, Pete Scazzaro says that we learn that we are deeply loved by God for who we are, not for what we do. Let me say that again. We are deeply loved by God for who we are, not for what we do. So Sabbath is a weekly resistance against that tendency to find our identity only in what we do or what we possess as opposed to simply who we are as a child of God. So how do, what, how do we create a plan to actually observe the Sabbath? How do we actually do this? Um, it begins by committing to start or restarting some form of practice of Sabbath and to, and to carve out a time period. If you want to go all in, go for the 24-hour period. Lots of people start with sundown from one day to sundown the next. One example would be sundown on Saturday night to sundown on Sunday evening because worship is included in the middle of it. Right? For others, you know, it's different times of the week, and it, depending on your line of work, especially if you're a nurse or a doctor or a first responder of some kind, you may not be able to have Sundays. So you have to find a time, but if it's 24 hours, pick a sundown to sundown. is typically a good time to do it. If that seems crazy and just there's no chance, start small. Start with an hour. Start with two hours. Maybe some of you have to start with a minute, but start with an hour or two hours or four hours and increase it over time. Again, like these other areas, if you go all in, believe me, God's going to engage and meet you with his grace in that. But some of you may be hearing this maybe for the first time and think, Jeff, you're out of your mind. That's okay. There's a lot of grace in that. I'm introducing this today, hopefully again, to help us move into the future. So block out that time. Seek to disengage, whether it's from work or from anything where you feel that pressure to keep up with the demands that are on you. I'm going to stop rest, delight, and worship for that time, right? Maybe turn off your phone, put on Do Not Disturb, go outside, do something different, break up the rhythm. So think about this. I mean, this is all really comes back to Jesus, right? As we think about God's people who were rescued out of Egypt and out of being enslaved in Egypt, right, and brought into a new way of life, Jesus, right, his death on the cross broke us free from the power of sin and the power of evil and even of death itself. And because Jesus broke us out of that enslavement, we are now, as followers of Christ, children of God. And our identity is found in who we are in Him, not in what we do, not in what we possess. And so as we come back and we practice Sabbath, it allows us to remember that truth. We need to remember those great words that God the Father said to Jesus, this is my son or daughter whom I love. In you, I am well pleased that you are a beloved child of God, not a doing machine that's meant to keep up with all the demands of your life. You are a child of God. And we are promised a forever Sabbath of rest in his presence forever. For all the the burdens and the pains and the struggles of this world will go away. But until we're with God forever in his presence, He gives us a weekly opportunity to embrace the grace, have a taste of heaven here as we seek to practice and observe Sabbath, right? To stop, rest, delight, and worship in the course of our weeks. As we finish, I want to give you one thing to remember and one thing to do and a couple questions for consideration. One thing to remember is this. We are no longer slaves to doing, 
because of Jesus. And God commands us to observe a Sabbath day's rest to experience this freedom. Remember that. Second, one thing to do is to commit to observing the Sabbath day. I would say for the next two weeks, try this in the next two weeks by implementing a Sabbath plan. As you've heard this, again, if you need to start small, start small. Take an hour, maybe a couple hours, maybe four hours. For some saying, I'm just going to go all in for the day from sundown to sundown. Carve out a time. Try to stop. Try to rest. Try to delight and worship and see what happens. And receive a taste of heaven. And resist all that's in this world that wants us to make us to return like they were in Egypt as human doing machines as opposed to human beings. Some questions for reflection. I'll let you consider these today with a friend, a small group, or on your own in a journal. One, in what ways do you find your identity in what you do, produce, or possess? Slow down and think about that. What, in what ways do you find your identity in what you do, produce, or possess? I guess I'll leave you with that question for the whole week. Next would be, second question, how do these control you and cause stress in your life? Slow down and reflect on that. Right? As you think about all the ways, um, the things that you do, produce, or possess, and how that causes stress. Lastly, consider what could change if you trusted God by observing this ancient practice of the Sabbath in some capacity, right? Starting where you need to start. There's a lot of grace in this and then expanding out to that full day. What could change? Right? Imagine. Imagine having a taste of heaven each week. Imagine actually being able to breathe. Imagine being able to delight in the gifts that God's given you. Imagine where little Pharaoh no longer controls you and it's no longer you're a tool of little Pharaoh, but little Pharaoh is a tool for you. Imagine what could be different if we practiced in some capacity this gift of Sabbath. May God bless you as you discover this gift of Sabbath as we move into this as a church family. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your rest. You uh, invite us and command us to be still and know that you are God. And you also invite us and command us to taste and see that you are good. But Lord, we are busy and we are like those, like those Israelites in Egypt who were just constantly doing stuff, producing stuff. God, I pray for each person who hears this message, God, that you would help them to see their lives with fresh eyes. Lord, we, I need to see this. We all need to see this. God, help us to take a step in the direction of finding a weekly space and time for rest with you, to worship you, to delight in the gifts you've given us. God, we need this in some capacity. I pray that you would give us grace to try this, to do this, and help us to encourage each other in this practice. And uh, may this become a marker of our church, especially here in a culture where there's always more to do. We'll never be finished with all the things we have to do, but God, help us to cease and to stop and to practice Sabbath. And we look forward to how you're gonna meet us through that practice. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.